Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to be continuing it in our teaching series that we've been in for the past couple months. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 15 and 16 this morning. And you know what? Since we had Thanksgiving this past Thursday, I think it's safe to say that we can legally begin celebrating Christmas or the holidays with everyone else. Now, I say this every single year, and it seems like I, I say it sooner than, than later because the years keep spinning faster, but our family starts celebrating Christmas on November 1st whenever Christmas music starts. Amen? Amen? Now, we have some people in the church that are rebellious against that, but we are still working on you, okay? But, you know, I was listening to a song this week, uh, one of the Christmas songs, and it's a silly, silly Christmas song. It has nothing to do with Christmas, other than uh, it's, it's a song that I think captures the heart and the attitude of the Israelites in the, the desert. I want you to think through your bank of songs. This is the song. It was written in 1944. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, okay? I'm going to recite it, and if you want to say it with me, you can. That's fine. If not, you can just listen to the words. Let it sink in. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. My two front teeth. See my two front teeth. Gee, if I could only have my then I would wish you a Merry Christmas, right? It seems so long, I'm a, I'm a, we're going to do the whole thing, all right? It seems so long since I could say, Sister Susie sitting on a thistle. Now, I had a lisp when I was little, so I would say it like that, okay? So, but that had nothing to do with that. Uh, Sister Susie sitting on a thistle. Gosh, oh gee, how happy I'd be if I could only whistle. And then it goes back to the chorus. Now, you know, that song right now, uh, that song that I just said, this child in this song is discontent. I don't know if you've noticed that. They are actually complaining. Now, we don't, a lot of times we don't identify it as that, but this child is complaining about something that they don't like in their life. They're complaining about something they don't have, something that's actually good that they lost their two front teeth and adult ones are going to grow in there. But they are complaining. And really what the lie is is that they think, if only I had this, then life would be good. You know what I'm talking about? Do you have a Christmas list? Christmas list, all I want for Christmas is blank. I remember when I was younger, I, uh, there was a thing called the Sears Catalog. And every year at Christmas, they would have their special edition Christmas catalog. How many of you guys remember that? Young people, do not raise your hand, okay? This is before the internet, and the, the book came out. And I remember I was thinking through it, and I was like, oh, man, I remember back in 1979, I wanted this Dallas Cowboys bike. And I went online and I found it. Okay, this is the exact, this was exactly the way I remembered it. And that bike, I remember staring at that bike, what was that saying, $98 or something? That's a lot back then in 1979. But I'm, I mean, look at those knob tires. I can still feel number 12, Roger Stahlbach, you know, things that are just really good to that time period. And I remember that bike whispering to me, hey, if you had me, you'd be content the rest of your life. Just 
want me, right? So I would want, I wanted that bike. Christmas came and I didn't get it. Okay, I never got that bike. And so I've never been content in my life because of that. <laughs> I'm blaming my parents. I'm a, I'm a good uh, citizen of today for my reason that I'm not content. But, you know, that's what things of this world promise us. If you can have this, then you'll be content. Then you can praise God. And as believers, we can fall into that trap. And last week, we, we left Israel on the other side of the Red Sea in chapter 14. They had crossed over. They are totally delivered from their Egyptian enemies. And there's a rare thing about them that we're going to find out in chapter 15, verse, beginning with verse 1, is that they are, com- they are completely content in God. That's where we're going to find them at the beginning of this passage. This is a rare occurrence as we go through the book of Exodus, that they are fully content in God. And and I know that they're fully uh, content in God because they see him for who he truly is, and it produces worship in them, and they are worshiping him. We're going to find in chapter 15, verse 1, the first song uh, recorded in the Bible. And I wanna, I'm want to. i just going to go through some of the highlights here because we, we're going to go through chapter 15 and 16. But if you've got your Bibles, let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. I want you to pay attention to what this is said in here because this is what true worship looks like. I want you to, to pay attention to what they say about God and if they say anything about themselves, okay? This is what true worship looks like. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. That's what true worship is, is singing to the Lord. He, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. Notice they're not going in my salvation. They're not going, look what I did. They're saying, look what the Lord did, the Lord, through the Lord's strength, through the, through the Lord's salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is exactly where the Lord wants them to be, fully rejoicing and worshiping him. Let's jump down to verse 11. They continue and say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? When we truly see God for who he is, that's what our response is. There is nobody like our God. We're proud of him. We want to uh, worship him. It says, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. When we see who God really is, we just worship and we're, we're filled with what we were created to do. Jump down to 14. It says, the peoples have heard. Now, this is speaking, well, let me read it. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now, this is talking about the, the people that were surrounding the area and, and the people that were in Canaan. They hear about the, what happened at the Red Sea. We're going to find out about that in, a, in another book where Rahab tells them when, when Joshua's marching around Jericho, they say, We've, we're afraid of you guys. That was 40 years later. So what God did here scares everyone around them for fear of, of the God that they're following. Verse 16 says, You will bring your people in and plant them on your mountain, the place, of, uh, the, the place O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Right there, you know why they're in such a good place? Because they believe what God has promised them. They're like, you're going to bring us into the promised land. You're going to do good to us. They're walking uh, in, the, in, in the truth of God. And that is what true worship is. It's where God, not man, is exalted. And notice that the people are content 
and they are satisfied because they see God for who he is. And when we see God for who he is, you cannot contain your worship. It will be a response to who he is. And so the people are, I want to make a note here, they are walking in total contentment. Then we jump to verse 22. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water there. I want to make two, uh, bring out two points in this, these, uh, this verse. Number one is that, notice the third word, then Moses made. That word made is a Hebrew word that means to tear out or to uproot or cause to break away. They're not wanting to leave the Red Sea is what's going on here. And so Moses is like, come on, we got to go. Apparently, they were content to stay where they were. Now, this is something we need to learn here, that, that it's good to be content in the Lord, but there comes a time when he wants us to move forward. And what God is wanting to do is he's seeking to lead them into maturity. So he has done a great, uh, a great act for them to worship him, to see who he is. And now he, they're gonna, he's going to move them to a place they don't want to go, which is out into the wilderness, away from, from the big city. And so what I want to point out here is that we need to be aware that the blessings of the past are meant to encourage us to move forward towards maturity. God blesses us with seasons. There may be a time that you're, you have this this group of people that you're hanging out with that God gives you. It could be even in our church, a small group where we're enjoying one another, and we're like, well, we need to, we need to spread out and grow. And it's like, no, I want to stay in my little group here. It's like, well, well, we need to grow to maturity. So that sometimes God gives us blessings to encourage us, to, to let us know that he's with us, and that there's more blessing in the future, but we got to move out to maturity. But we don't like that, do we? We want to just stay where things are safe and uh, they feel good. And just as there is a danger of forgetting what God has done, there can also be a danger of getting stuck in what has, has done in our past uh, or, or successes that he's given us. So that's just a warning to be aware of. Secondly, I want us to see here is that it says that three days they went into the wilderness and found no water. To us, that's probably, we, most of us can't relate to that. Um, but there's three things that humans need. you got to have, you got to have air, you got to have water. you got to have food. It, it doesn't take long to not have those three things for us to die. Uh, I've heard it's like three minutes for air. I went in and looked up the world record for air, like how long the longest someone has held their breath. And it's, it's a Croatian man uh, who's uh, held his breath for 24 minutes, 37.36 seconds. I was just like, that is amazing. I don't know how he did that. Um, when it comes to food, it's, it's usually like three, three weeks. If you're um, just a normal person, there's been records of 40 to 70 days that people have experienced. But with water, it's, it's usually three to five days, uh, and that's where these Israelites are at. And the point I'm trying to make here is that this, is, this really is a, a real situation. I don't want to minimize what's going on here and act like, a, why are they complaining? Why are they grumbling? Um, I can grumble when the, the uh, people aren't gathering around to, to pray over the, the uh, Thanksgiving turkey because I'm hungry. Three days without water in the wilderness. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been out in the wilderness without water. I, I was like that one time, and it is like a terror that will come over you when you realize, if I don't get water, I'm going to die. 
And so under ordinary circumstances, these people are in a dangerous situation. But the point we need to remember here is that God led them there. They are obeying God. Therefore, they are, uh, they are safe, and there is really nothing for them to fear. Now, it's uncomfortable. Their flesh is screaming at them, telling them things, but it is not, uh, they are not in a place of danger. Look at verse 23. It says, When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Now, Marah means bitter. And probably what happened was they're thirsty. They look up and they see an oasis of water. They're like, yes, praise God, we are saved. Have you ever been like that? You thought the trial was over? And God's like, no, you're just in the, at the very beginning of it. Well, that's where they come to the water. They try to drink it, and it's bitter. And it says in verse 24, and the people grumbled. That word is going to be throughout this passage around nine times. They grumbled against Moses. They complained. They murmured against, against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, the water is bitter. They're also showing that their spirits are bitter also. Verse 25, and he cried. Moses cried to the Lord. He did what they should have done. He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now, our, our curiosity, if you're like me, the, your curiosity says, what, I don't know what that log was that was thrown into the, into the, to the water. I mean, I wonder what that was. And people debate this. They, they studied it, and, and uh, some people are like, well, it's probably this plant that, uh, that has a uh, herbal, herbal, it's an herbal bush that you throw into the water, and it's, it like masks, masked all the bitter minerals. And that cannot be what it is because there was like 2 million people and their livestock. And I don't know how many bushes you would have to cut down. You would have to cut down a forest, and that, that means they weren't in the wilderness. But anyway, it cannot be that. Um, and really, I don't, the Bible doesn't say what it was. Um, that's not the point of this passage for us to figure that out. Even if you figure it out, here's what, what the Jews would say. If you come to a place in a passage and it doesn't make sense and, or you don't, you know, you can't figure it out. Don't try to figure out the thing that doesn't change your life. Like if you figured out that it was a, a two by four, is that going to change your life? No, it's not. That's not the point of this passage. Okay. It's cool to think about it, but let's not stay there too long. Like I just did. Other people think that it is uh, a picture of the cross. You know, and I would actually, uh, before I, when I was studying this passage, I was like, that's what I'm going to bring out in this passage, even though I hadn't studied it yet. But when, once I broke God into it, I was like, I don't know. I really don't know if that's really what the, this passage is about anymore. Um, because, you know, it's talking about taking a, 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 a log and throw it into bitter water, just like the cross, when it, it comes into our life, it sweetens our lives. And, and that's, a, that's true, but I don't know that this is what this passage is teaching. I'll talk a little bit more why I've come to that conclusion by the end. So stay with me to the end of this, this message. Uh, but here's what we do know this passage is teaching. It is teaching that God provides for his people. God provides for his people, and he delivers his people. That's, that's what this passage is teaching. So let's, let's take that to heart and remember this, that God provides for his people. Now, in verse 26, Moses says, uh, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what, that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, 
I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Basically what Moses is saying, or what the Lord is saying through Moses, is saying, he's saying, don't just listen to the words that are being said and be like, well, that's pretty cool. He's saying, listen carefully. Listen with the intent to obey, to put into action what you're hearing. We got, you know, this is, this is one of those uh, statements that we got to remember that we can come to church or read the Bible every day and go, man, that's so good and then not apply it. So that's what the Lord is warning against. He's saying, trust me, obey me, and it will go well with you. Do what I've called you to do. After that, he leads them to an oasis where there are 12 springs of water. It's interesting that there were 12 tribes of Israel, and there are now 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and he has them encamped there by the water. Um, this is just, again, a, a reminder that God is good, he's kind, and that he provides for his people. If you remember the pattern last week, we talked about you're either in a trial, you're either coming out of a trial, or you're getting ready to go back into a trial. Well, this is where they were in a trial, God has led them out, and he's bringing them to an oasis. This is a reminder that God refreshes us. After we come out of trials, he'll put us in the fire, then he'll put us, take us out, and he'll give us some rest, and then he leads us back in. Why is he doing that? Is it because he's evil and he's angry? He likes to torture us? No, it's because he's wanting to bring us to maturity and he's wanting to bring the maturity of Christ, his son, in and through us. So he does that through these trials. Let's go to chapter 16 now and let's look at verse 1. Because they're going to, now they got to leave this oasis where they've, they've got everything, you know, water and the things that they need. It says, they set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. That's funny that it's, it's um, that's not what it means, but that's to us the word sin. But we're going to see that it does kind of apply to them. They came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Okay, look at verse 2. Here we go again. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, here we go again, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meats, by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." This is a pattern we've seen already in the book of Exodus. We're going to continue to see it, unfortunately. Sometimes I see it in my own life um, when I'm grumbling. This is twisted thinking. Just think what they're saying. They're like, oh, I wish we had died at the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Who was the one killing them in Egypt? Whose hand? It wasn't the Lord's. It was the Egyptians' hand. Basically, what they're saying is, is we were treated better by the Egyptians' Then, then the Lord is treating us. I wish we had never left. And then they say, oh, I wish we had all, remember when we had all that meat? You know, it seems so long since I could say, Sister Susie, pass me some of that meat and some of that bread. Oh, it was so good back then before we started following the Lord. And you know, um, the God of the Old Testament is often given a bad rap, isn't he? He's, they, they, that people want to say that he's angry, that he's a wrathful God, that he's not like the God of the New Testament who's merciful and kind, which it's the same God. And he actually acts the same way with his people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want us to see in verse 4 
that that is true again. Now, we can look back at the beginning of Exodus and go, come to this point, but I want to look at verse 4 because his kindness, his mercy, his patience continues. It says, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain blank from heaven. Now, if this was you, if you're God, you've been taking care of, of, of these people, and they turn around and you've delivered them from their Egyptians through that great the Red Sea, and they turn around and go, you're evil, Everything you do is, is you're trying to destroy us. What would you say? I'm going to rain down from heaven. <laughs> I'm going to rain something not what God says. Let's look at God. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. You know what he's, he's saying? He's saying, he's saying this. All right, look, this isn't really your problem, but I'm going to give you what you want because I'm going to show you. That once, even once you get this, it's not going to satisfy you. It says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from, you, uh, from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. That word test uh, means to train. It's a testing with the purpose of, of training them. I'm going to train them, test them, whether they will walk in my law or not? Are they going to take my word and, and obey it? Are they going to trust in me? Are they go- going to apply it? God is, another thing he's doing here is he's training them to be dependent upon him. We all are dependent upon him whether we realize it or not. Every breath we take is from God. We exist because God brought us into existence. And he's wanting to, to help them to see that you need me. Come, come be a part of what you were created to be. So that he's giving them something called manna that they have to collect every day, just enough for that day. And this echoes what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. He says, give us this day our daily bread. This morning, are you in a place where you don't know what you're going to do about work tomorrow or school or a relationship that's down out in the future that you've got to deal with this week, this upcoming week, and it's bothering you? Let me encourage you to acknowledge that, but to live in today. Ask God, Lord, I don't know what we're going to do here. I know you're going to be there, but I pray that today that you'll give me my daily bread today. Give me my manna today. Help me to be satisfied in you today. I don't have to wait till tomorrow. Help me to be, make it through today. That's what this, this uh, manna is going to teach us. Verse 5, it says, On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So I want to make sure that we're all understanding what's happening here. God is saying, I'm going to give you manna six times a week, okay? Five times uh, during the week, you get just enough for those five days. On the sixth day, I want you to get double what you need to get. Because on the seventh day, you're going to rest. God is is foreshadowing the Sabbath day that he's going to uh, bring about later on in the book of Exodus. But he's, he's letting them see I want you on the, on the sixth day, get double the amount. Now, this is a great, we're going to see here as we keep going through here, that this is a miracle uh, of what happens to the bread if they will obey him. Verse 6 says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, why did he even have to say that? I want to read that one more time in case you weren't paying attention. At evening, you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They have already forgotten that God brought them out of Egypt. So they need to be reminded, like me, verse 7, And in the morning, 
I love this. You shall see the glory of the Lord because you have, uh, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling and that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And what we need to do here is we need to pay attention to this thing called grumbling and, and complaining. Yeah, I think it's something that we can allow in our lives. Uh, it's so common in our culture and even in, in my own life. Uh, we can allow it there and not realize how deadly it is. It, it is. Grumbling is a deadly poison that infects and destroys an entire congregation. Grumbling against one another is a very destructive thing. Moses warns about it in Deuteronomy 29, 18. He says, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Grumbling destroys the work that God wants to do within our own lives and within the community of the church. But I want to point out something about grumbling that it's not just good enough to stop grumbling. Grumbling is a symptom. Grumbling is a symptom of a deeper heart issue. So I want to go a little bit deeper than just the outward grumbling. This summer, I was in my basement walking around, and there was a, I noticed that there was this puddle of water that was coming out from under the wall. And that's not a good thing. Uh, when you're in a house, to, to see water in your basement. And so uh, I did a little bit of investigation. I went on around to the other side, and what I found out was that the HVAC unit was, um, the water was coming over the edge of the uh, catch basin. That's not a good thing. So I went and got my wet vac, vacuumed everything up. I'm like, okay, good. Well, it kept filling back up. I had to go further than what I was doing. I had to figure out what the problem was because I was just going to treat the symptom if I didn't fix the problem. I could just keep getting up the water. So just not grumbling is not enough. We need to understand what the problem is. What I found out was is that in the, there's a condensate uh, line that comes out of the unit, and it had gotten clogged over the, over the years, and it was just backing up and coming over. So what did I do? I unclogged it, and to this day, it is working right now. I'll probably go home and something else is wrong. But my point is, is that grumbling alerts us that we're clogged with something. Grumbling alerts us that we're clogged with, and I'm going to call it discontentment. When you grumble, it's because you're discontent. We need to understand that. That's what this passage teaches us. They are discontent with where they're at, therefore they begin to grumble. Now, discontentment is, there is a good type of discontentment, and I, I don't want to say that all discontentment is wrong. Uh, for example, the prodigal son, he leaves his father, he goes and lives with pigs, and he suddenly becomes discontent. And that discontentment wakens him and goes, what am I doing? He repents, and he returns home. That's happened in my life. When I am falling short as a father, I'm not, I'm not doing what I should, or, or as a husband, or maybe I'm being slack in my work, and I'm not doing what I should. There, there becomes this discontentment that if I will respond to it, it's repentance. So there is a good discontentment. The difference between that discontentment and the discontentment I'm talking about today is this discontentment does not create repentance. It creates grumbling. Okay, so that's how you know which discontentment you're in. You're grumbling. 
Because some, even, even in our lives as we're walking with the Lord, there's times that he's ready to move you on to another place and he'll give you discontentment, but it will not be full of grumbling. That's the, that's the difference between the two. So anyway, grumbling uh, that's, that's uh, destructive alerts us that we're discontent. And if we're discontent, that is a symptom. So we've got, we got this symptom of grumbling. There's discontentment. That's not, en- that's not enough to stop there. What is causing the grumbling? Well, it's actually unbelief. That's the root of it. When we don't trust God, we get clogged with discontentment, which produces grumbling. And when we are discontent and we grumble, Moses is saying, you're grumbling, not against me. You're grumbling against God. Every time we grumble, we need to realize, I'm grumbling against God. If we would just tell ourselves the truth, I'm grumbling right now, I'm complaining, that shows me that I am grumbling, I'm complaining against God. Why? Because I'm not trusting him in some area. I'm not believing that he has this thing. And it's the same things that we, we typically um, doubt God in. We doubt in his sovereignty. Lord, you probably there's nothing you can do about my situation. Or his wisdom, Lord, you're not wise, you don't know what you're doing, or uh, you are, you are um, sovereign, but you're not good. You could change my situation, but really you're just you're letting this happen and you're letting me get destroyed. Regardless of what the, the unbelief is, this is rebellion against God. We need to realize that. Uh, it, it is a very serious sin um, that, that needs to be dealt with. And so what God says here, he says, hey, all right, all you want for Christmas is bread and meat. That, that's all you want? Okay, good. I'm going to give you what you want. And in verse 13, he says, in the evening, quail came, upon, came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. It must have looked like snow was on the ground after the, after the uh, water evaporated. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And an interesting thing is, the Hebrew word translated manna means, what is it? So they said, what is it? Moses said, what is it? That's what it is. And who's on first? And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, this, this should have made them realize how special important and important they are because they are the only people God ever gave this kind of bread too. He, just even in this miracle, it shows how much God is wanting to win his people, to show them, I love you. Please believe that I care about you. I've got your best interest in mind. Verse 16 says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as, as you can eat. You shall take each take an omer. Now, scholars, an omer, uh, I don't, we don't use that measurement now, but it's, it has been anything from a cup to a gallon in the, uh, over the years of what, how much an omer is. But you're to take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has uh, in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. 
Verse 19 says, and Moses said to them, all right, he's going to give them a commandment about manna. Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. So do you think that the people are like, okay, what do you think they're going to do? Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. That's like some of the teenagers' bedrooms, isn't it? <laughs> Clean up your room. All right. And Moses was angry with them. I bet he was. Have you ever been like uh, wanting to follow the Lord and then you got somebody in the camp that doesn't? Or maybe you're the one in the camp that doesn't want to follow the Lord. And it just causes the rest of everything to be kind of bogged down. I think Moses just like, come on, y'all. Let's, let's obey the Lord. Let's remember what he has done for us. Verse 21 says, morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. There are some people that try to explain what this is, that it's not a miracle and that you can go out into the wilderness where they were at and there's these bushes that have these, uh, that give this accretion of, of uh, sweetness and you can gather it and that people are still gathering it today. But it is not, does not happen the way this has been described. This is a miracle. This is, it was actual thing, uh, manna that came from the heavens and has not been done again. Verse 22 through 23, it says um, they instructed um, them to gather twice as much manna on day six. But in 24, it said, so they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink. When they gathered, when they obeyed God and gathered it twice as much on day six, it did not do the worms. It did not stink. It, this is, again, showing why this is a miracle from God. Verse 25 says, Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find it, you will not, look at this, you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he has given you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh. Verse 30 says, so the people rested on the seventh day. And verse 35 says, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years. I want you to look at that word, 40 years, till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, it says 40 years they did this, but you know it could have only been, could have been down to three. Um, when we get to the book of Numbers, we see that basically, basically it took them three years as they went through the wilderness. God was going to train them for three years and then have them conquer the land. And they stand outside uh, the borders of Canaan, the, and they send in, if you remember, they, Moses sends in 12 spies, Two come back with a great report, ten with a bad report, and they poison the whole congregation, fill them with unbelief. God, God's not with us. God, we can't overcome these people. They're, we're afraid of them when really they were afraid, the people in the inhabitants were afraid of, of Moses and them. And so the entire congregation, it says, they grumbled. They grumble. And, and you know what? The Lord's like, okay, enough. That's it. This, con this group right here, this that came out of the land of Egypt will not enter into 
the promised land. You're going you're gonna to wander for 37 more years until every one of you dies except for Joshua and Caleb, and you will not enter in. And J.R. Tolkien uh, once said, all who wander are not lost. But I would add, but sometimes they're just being disciplined by the Lord. That's what's happening, happening here. A lot of times I, I wonder, what blessings have I missed because of my stubbornness and my unwillingness to obey the Lord? How much does he want to bless me? And I'm not just talking like, I'm not talking material things. I'm just talking in spiritual realms of things. How much if I would fight, if I would listen intently and diligently to the Lord? Now, what does it mean? Uh, what is true contentment? What does it look like? I want to look at that, and then we're going to close here. What is true contentment? Because we all want to be content, don't we? We all want to be satisfied. Well, Psalm 131 is, a, is one of the shortest psalms in the Bible. It's three verses. It's David. He's talking to the Lord. He describes what contentment look, looks like. He says in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I don't occupy myself with things I can't control. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with its mother. Like a winged child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You had not been hoping in them, hope from here on and forevermore. True contentment, you know what that is? It's a sign of maturity in Christ. When we are truly, when we learn to walk in contentment in Christ. And the difference between a nursing child and a, a child that has been weaned is simply maturity. Um, an unweaned child is not content just being with mom. He wants something from mom, right? He wants milk. But you know, you can actually pacify an unweaned child with a bottle. It doesn't have to be mom. It can be a pacifier. But a, a child that's been weaned that doesn't need the milk anymore wants mom. They just want to be with mama. And, and the, the most uh, four words of terror that mom can say to that child is, I'll be right back. That those are the worst. I remember when we had little children, and Kelly would be like, I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'll be right back. That, I was like, no, 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 don't. And our kids would be like screaming and yelling. They would be like, no, don't leave. You know, they want mom. When I say I'll be right back, they're like, take your time. <laughs> but when, when mama says, I, I'm not, is that not true? I mean, that, it's like, take your time. We get to watch TV now or whatever it is. What brings contentment to the child of God? It, it all depends upon the level of our maturity. When, we, when we're really walking in maturity, Christ, Christ, Jesus, is what makes our heart content. Charles Spurgeon said of Psalm 131, he said, it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn, to learn true contentment. And we need to understand that contentment is something that must be learned Okay, Paul says that in Philippians 4.11. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's saying, you know what, I know what, how to be content if I'm walking through the Red Sea, seeing wonderful miracles of God. I also know how to be content if I'm out in the wilderness and I don't have water and I don't have bread. I have learned the secret. What is that secret? He says, I've learned it. He says it twice in this passage. I've learned what that means, what it is. Well, verse 13 is, is, is the answer. And verse 13 is one of those, those verses that um, I have misused in the past. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it. I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. We can take that verse and go, you know, I want to uh, run a marathon. I want to pass my exam. I want to be president of the United States. I have this dream that I want to accomplish, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not what Paul's talking about here at all. In context, he's talking about contentment. What he's saying here is, I can do all things with contentment through Christ who strengthens me. No matter what situation, because he says, I can do it whether I'm high, in the, on the highs, or in the lows, or in the in-betweens. I can do all things with contentment. I've learned the secret. The secret is Christ who strengthens me. How do we learn to be content? What can I do? What can we do to grow in maturity? Well, you know, it's Thanksgiving. We're around our families. A lot of us are. Sometimes we have gatherings. Have you ever noticed how stressful it can be to go to a a family gathering? There's always that crazy uncle that's there, right? Well, in my family, I am the crazy uncle, okay? But I know it. I know I'm the crazy uncle. So I, I wanted to prepare myself before we got together with everyone else. So I'm going to share, share what I did to get ready for Thanksgiving, okay? So I'm going to give you a Thanksgiving meal. I promise you it's a short Thanksgiving meal. It's just three courses that I want to give you. The first one is this, is thank God he's not fair. I had to thank God before everyone came over that he's not fair. And what I mean by that is that he doesn't give me what I deserve, Okay, because what we are, what the Israelites are doing in the wilderness, they are accusing God of not being fair. This isn't fair that we are out here in the wilderness. And I think, what if Moses had just, um, you know, said, "Hold, let's let's stop right there. We're grumbling. Let, let's turn around. We're going to go back to the Red Sea." What if he had just taken them back to the Red Sea and said, "All right, look at all the. Remember all these guys laying around here that are on the seashore now that have died." Okay, I want to remind us something. That should have been us. We're no better than these guys here. God, that, that's, God has not given us what we deserve. He's been merciful. We need to be reminded, and they need to be, to be reminded, that God did not save them because they were righteous, and they were following God, and they had done everything good. He did it because he's merciful, and he's kind, and he's good, and he wanted to show his glory to them through that if they would respond. I believe he would have responded to the, to the um, Egyptians if they would have responded to him, which they would they didn't, and they wouldn't. But God, uh, when I thank God that he's not fair, when I thank him, Lord, I deserve this, uh, your wrath. I deserve, uh, I do not deserve your love and your kindness because of what I've done. When I get that, really get that and believe it because it's true, it puts me in the right place. 
Like, I'm no better than anybody else. Because I have a tendency at times to think I'm better than everybody else. And right now, you're looking at me going, you, ooh, you think you're better than everybody else? And you're thinking you're better than me, because I just said that. But it's one of those things that we struggle with, thinking that we're self-righteous, that I'm better than that person. The cross reminds me, no, this is what you deserve, James, what Jesus got. Let that soak in. Thank you, Lord, that you're not fair. I praise you that you're not fair. But don't stop there. Go to the second course, which is thank God for manna. Thank God for manna. And that means, what I mean by that is thank, thank him that he's gracious and that he gives us what we don't deserve. Now, earlier in this passage, we were talking about the log. Uh, does this represent Jesus? And uh, the reason I don't think, uh, I can't say that it does, is because the scripture that I know of doesn't anywhere say the log that Moses threw into the water is a picture of the cross. But manna, scripture is clear that that's what it is. It's in my favorite chapter, John chapter 6. Jesus is talking to uh, discontent people. All they want is bread. They want the literal bread. And, and they, they say to him in verse 31 of chapter 6, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. See, they say it very clearly. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If we want to be in a place of contentment, we have got to learn where that contentment comes from. It is not the things of this earth. It is not the gifts that God gives us. When we find ourselves content in, man, in the true manna, when we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, when we really have fellowship with him, not just ideas about Jesus, but the actual Jesus, we're experiencing his spirit in times with him in private and in, in, in worshiping him and praising him that he's not giving us what we deserve, but that he's given us things that we don't deserve. We become a grateful and content people. We can be like Paul. It doesn't matter, matter if it's high, we're, in our, we're in our highs or in the lows or in between. We're with Christ, and we are content. We can thank him for his mercy, for his kindness, for his provision, and for his patience. We need to, and so we need to learn to walk in fellowship with Jesus, with Jesus himself. And then third, the third course is thank God with your life. It's just a response. It's just an overflowing of what Christ has done. When we get what we deserve and what, that Jesus took it for us and we, we uh, thank him, uh, we take of the manna, it gives us a desire to give our lives away as Christ has done. It's that simple, but it's not easy, right? So I just want to encourage us this morning, uh, wherever you're at, um, if you're not, uh, if you're grumbling, realize you're not content. If you're not content, there's something in your life where you're not trusting God in. I don't know what that is. It can be a million different things. But come to a place where you trust him, and you will be a content people, and we will glorify God with our lives. Amen? Let's pray. 
Father, I want to thank you again for uh, just the way you reveal yourself through the Word, uh, the way you show yourself, uh, the way you showed yourself to the Israelites is exactly how you've shown yourself to us, patient, kind, uh, wanting to teach us and to lead us, and when we fail, you, you continue to stay with us. We want to praise you for that. Lord, I ask that this morning that you would help us to take a step forward, where, whatever you're calling us to do. Lord, help us to uh, eat the manna. Uh, that came from heaven. Help us to be satisfied in Jesus so that we can enjoy all the blessings that you give us from the right spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.